Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. All right, so here's a question for you, an honest one. What do you do when the going gets tough? When the going gets tough, what's the default thing you do? How would you answer that question? How would you fill in this blank? When the going gets tough, I... Maybe some of us would say, when the going gets tough, I distract myself with social media. Or when the going gets tough, I drink more than I know I should. Or when the going gets tough, I shut down and isolate myself from others. Or I escape from reality by binging on food or Netflix or video games. Or I get angry and lash out at my family. Or when the going gets tough, I try to self-medicate to numb the pain. See, there's perhaps no better test of character than how we react when the going gets tough. Our response uh, to the trials that we face speaks volumes about us, and it speaks volumes about the strength of our faith. See, it's one thing to be faithful to God when we're traveling along the straight, smooth roads of life, but it's another thing entirely when those smooth roads get bumpy or when those straight roads suddenly have an unexpected curve. See, but when those bumpy roads come, because they will, and when those roads get dangerous or difficult, because they will, is your default response one of thrusting yourself entirely upon the faithfulness of God, or is your default response one of fear, or anger, or control, or isolation? What we're going to see today as we continue studying the life of Abram is that he failed to trust in God's faithfulness, and instead, He took a situation into his own hands. That's why we're calling this series that we started last week a stumbling faith, because the man that scripture holds up as as one of the most faithful men in history, he stumbles in his faith, and he fails to trust God. And we'll see today that Abram's failure to trust in God's faithfulness was very costly, From his example, we'll learn the same truth that that he had to learn the hard way, that our failure to trust in God's faithfulness is very costly. Our failure to trust in God's faithfulness is very costly. Our failure to trust in God in the midst of trials can have devastating consequences. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, and we're going to see how Abram, how Abram reacted to, to one of his earliest trials, the first trial, uh, really, that we see in Scripture for him. The last week we were introduced to Abraham, and we saw a man of, of great faith, 
a man of great faith who left everything behind to follow God. See, God revealed himself to Abram and made some pretty incredible promises to him. And after Abram hears from God, he abandons his home, he abandons his, his house, his family, his culture, his, all, everything he knew, all his people. He did all this to follow God into the unknown. He left his hometown of the thriving city of Ur, if you remember that from last week, and he went to the land of Canaan. And you'll be able to see this on the map. See, he willingly exchanged the, the uh, unknown. He willingly exchanged the known for the unknown and the familiar for the unfamiliar. And along the way in this 800-mile journey that you can see that arc there, Abram constructed altars along the way to God in show of, of his um, proclamation to the one true God and an expression of his dependence upon God and a demonstration of his faith in God. And then when he does arrive in the region that God promised, he comes face to face with a famine, a famine that puts his faith to the test. So Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Here's what it writes. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So Abram is now in the land of, of Canaan, the land that God promised to his descendants. And God essentially gave him a tour of the land going from north to south. And then Abram finds himself in the region of the Negev, the dry southern part of the land that's southwest of the Dead Sea. You can see that in the map there. See, now maybe Abram thought that God would reward him for his previous demonstration of, of having faith in God. Or maybe he thought that God would at least give him a season of rest after that long journey. But instead, Abram's faith is suddenly rocked by a famine. He quickly learns that Canaan, the land of promise, is subject to famine when there's not enough rainfall. So he does what he saw the Canaanites do. He packs up and he decides to travel to Egypt. See, Egypt wasn't dependent on, on rainfall for crops. They, they, they had the Nile River, so the Nile River would, would flood and the floodwaters from the Nile River would, would saturate um, the, all the soil and deposit rich silt into it, which would then lead to a very successful crop season. But this famine must have been really a source of fear for Abram. This wasn't something he used to. Remember, his hometown, uh, he was along the, the Fertile Crescent there. So they were used to abundant crops and green grass and just the beauty of all that. But instead of turning to God and seeking, his own counsel, and seeking God's counsel in prayer, Abram rushes down to Egypt instead. See, up until the famine, we see Abram communing with God. We see, we see Abram building altars in his expression of faith in God and his relationship with God. But now when he faces a famine, we don't see him erecting any more altars. We don't see him communing with God. Instead, we're told he goes down to Egypt. There's a little book called The Life of Abraham by F.B. Meyer, and he describes the meaning of Egypt when it appears in the Bible. Let me read you an excerpt from this book. It says, In the figurative language of Scripture, Egypt stands for an alliance with the world. Abraham acted simply on his own judgment. He looked at his difficulties and became paralyzed with fear. He grasped at the first means of deliverance that suggested itself, much as a drowning man will catch at a straw. And thus, without taking counsel of his heavenly protector, Abraham went down into Egypt. Ah, fatal mistake. But how many make it still? 
There may be true children of God, and yet in a moment of panic, they will adopt the methods of delivering themselves that, to say the least, are questionable, sowing the seeds of sorrow and disaster to save themselves from some minor embarrassment. How much better would it have been for Abraham to have thrown the responsibility back on God and to have said, you brought me here and you must now bear the whole weight of providing for me and my family. I will stay till I clearly know what you want me to do. See, here's the thing. By going to Egypt, Abraham wasn't necessarily abandoning the promised land. He only planned on going there temporarily until things in Canaan got better. Going to Egypt wasn't in and of itself a forbidden thing to do. It would have actually been the natural thing to do. But that's part of the problem for Abram. See, God wasn't calling him to do the natural thing that the Canaanites were doing when times got tough. Rather, he was being called to demonstrate a supernatural faith in his supernatural God. To make matters worse, he not only forgets God, but he turns to his own devices and employs his own coping mechanism in response to the crisis before him. Look at verse 11. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. So Abram and Sarai and the rest of the caravan, they, they get to the border of Egypt and we're told that Sarai is beautiful in appearance. Now at this time, Sarai was 65 years old and evidently she was a knockout, like the Sophia Loren or Jane Seymour of her day. And keep in mind that scripture tells us she did live until she was about 127 years old. So maybe for her in her 60s was equivalent to our 30s or 40s. And it's also worth noting that ideas of, of beauty in these traditional societies differ from our own societies. It was often the case that motherly figures were more desirable than a slim, youthful-looking women. So Sarai hears her hubby tell her, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And just when she thinks she's about to get an endearing compliment from him, his next words are anything but that. Verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. See, Abram responded to the famine with a faithless fear, and now we see his fears begin to increase in intensity. He fears that his wife's beauty will prove irresistible to the Egyptian men. And because he's a visitor in Egypt, he's got nobody there to, to protect his, his interests. He's got no family or friends there. He assumes that the Egyptian men are going to kill him so they could marry her. Now, in all fairness to Abram, this wasn't an unfounded fear. During that time in Egypt, the standard procedure for securing another man's wife was to kill the husband. But the problem is how Abram responds to this fear. See, instead of turning to the Lord, he turns to his own devices to concoct a plan. And we begin to see that plan in verse 13. This is his plan. Sarai, say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Ouch. See, he relies on himself for a plan instead of seeking God, and his self-reliance spits out a completely selfish plan. He's basically telling Sarah, he's saying, Sarah, lie to the people, tell them you're my sister. After all, if you do this for me, they'll let me live. He's worried about himself. Now, there's a little bit of tension in all this. It hasn't been revealed yet. It will be a little later in Genesis. But the truth is, Sarai is Abram's half-sister. 
You could say, ew, that is gross. But there are a couple things to keep in mind. One, this wasn't strictly forbidden during this time in human history. This was 4,000 years ago, about 2000 BC. It wasn't until 400 or more years after this when uh, God prohibits this through Moses uh, and giving the law. And second, some scholars do make the case that the gene pool was, was very pure uh, at this early time in human history, that at this early point, there wasn't the accumulation of genetic deficiencies that we see today. But regardless of all that, the point in all this is that Abram was convincing himself and his wife that his half-truth his half wasn't really a lie. See, it's possible that Abram was playing off a custom in these days known as uh, fratriarchy. Fratriarchy was a custom that said when there's no father, a brother can assume the legal guardianship of his sister, um, especially when it comes to uh, giving her away in marriage. So whoever wanted to take Sarai as a wife would first have to negotiate with Abram, her brother. And even if we give Abram the benefit of the doubt, he may have been thinking that this plan of his would, would buy him some time so that if someone approached him wanting to marry her, he'd be able to uh, escape and that would give them enough time. He couldn't see it yet, but this is where we begin to see the high cost of failing to trust in God's faithfulness. See, the great man of faith in the first nine verses of chapter 12 becomes a man of failure now, a man of faithlessness. When faced with a famine and with a, a challenging circumstance, Abram falls back into one of his coping mechanisms, deception. Chuck Swindoll, many of you know that name, he's got a little book called Abraham, and he says it well. He says this in the book. He says, a divine test usually exposes what might be called our default response to crisis. Everyone has a default response when confronted with a challenge to his or her faith. It starts as a self-preservation reflex. We then learn to cultivate this natural reflex into a strength. In time, we learn to respond to stress with expert agility without even thinking. And before we know it, we have a full-blown coping mechanism that takes over, keeping us from trusting in God. And then he says this, for Abram, it was deception, lying. He didn't tell untruths to people to cheat them or to gain an unfair advantage. He fibbed to save his own skin. It seemed he had gained an ability to spin believable falsehoods in the past, and in time, he became an expert. See, so here's what Abram's actions teach us. First, that our failure to trust God insults him. Our failure to trust God insults him. Th think about some of the ways Abram already insulted God. Well, we can see that he doesn't fully believe what God promised him. Remember earlier in the chapter when God called Abram, God made some pretty extraordinary promises to him. God promised he would make Abraham into a great nation, and then he promised that he would bless those who bless him, that he would curse those who curse him. Well, now, if Abram got killed in Egypt, how's God going to make him into a great nation? See, he either believed that God couldn't keep that promise, or in his panic, he forgot God's promise of protection. Not only did he refuse to completely believe what God promised, though, he also takes matters into his own hands instead of trusting God. See, he doesn't seek God when uh, picking up and packing and leaving the promised land to go to Egypt. He doesn't ask for God's guidance, for God's protection when he fears for his life on the borders of Egypt. Instead, he puts his trust in himself and he depends upon a lie. A, he's depending upon that lie to do what God had promised to do. See, his half-truth amounts to a complete lie. And this lie was a total insult to God's ability and promise to care for him, to protect him. 
to bless him. Not to mention the fact that Abram was more than willing to involve his wife in his scheming and use her as nothing more than a pawn to save his own skin. And certainly this was insulting to the God who calls on a man to love his wife sacrificially and to put her needs ahead of his own. Now, before we're too hard on Abram, we need to look in the mirror and realize that our faith in the 21st century stumbles just as it did for this faithless, fatherless man some 4,000 years ago. See, the poor example of Abram in this passage is a lesson for us that our failure to trust in God's faithfulness in the midst of trials is insulting to him. For Abram, his trial was famine and a fearing for his own life, and his coping mechanism was one of deception. But what's your famine? What's that area in your life, that thing, that that one particular uh, area that almost immediately causes you to panic? What's your spiritual blind spot? Is it your children, your spouse, your health, your finances, your job? What about your coping mechanism? What's your default response when crisis hits your family? What do you immediately fall back on when your job is in jeopardy or when you face significant financial challenges or when a close friend or family member gets a terrifying medical diagnosis? See, we need to ask God to reveal to us our spiritual blind spots. And we need to get into the rhythm of immediately turning to him in response to crisis. Our failure to trust God insults him. Faithful Abram's lack of faith is costly because it insults God and unfortunately the cost only increases as we see starting now in verse 14. It says this, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So when they enter into Egypt, it's just as Abram anticipated it would be. The Egyptians notice her beauty. So maybe he's starting to think that his plan is working out well. Verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. See, apparently in the midst of Abram's panic and in the middle of his scheming, he forgot to think about Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's officials saw Sarai's beauty. They went and told Pharaoh. They had a feeling that this was the kind of woman he was into. And then Abram assumed he could prevent the advances of the typical Egyptian man. But now he's wondering, how in the world am I going to stave off advances from Pharaoh himself? Well, he can't. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh takes Sarai into his palace. He, he adds her uh, to, the, to the harem along with his other wives, concubines, and female servants. And things start to disintegrate before Abram's eyes. I'd imagine at this point he's starting to realize that he'd done messed things up. See, he's safe and sound because Pharaoh thinks he's the brother. Meanwhile, his wife gets treated like a piece of property, spending sleepless nights in this unfamiliar palace, wondering when... Pharaoh's going to call on her. And to top things off, Pharaoh lavishes Abraham with these uh, luxurious gifts. Look at verse 16. It says, And for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now remember back in verse 13 when Abram was bringing his wife into his little plan, he said to her, Say you are my sister. Why? That it may go well with me because of you. Well, he definitely didn't have in mind Pharaoh treating him this well. 
But for Sarai's sake, Pharaoh gifts Abraham some pretty expensive items. He did this either as a dowry to the one who he thought was her brother or because he really had the hots for her. We don't know. But the gifts that Pharaoh gave to Abram made him extremely rich. Look at them. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. This doesn't seem like a lot to us, but this was an insane gift. Having animals like this and having a bunch of servants was something reserved only for the wealthy. And having one camel meant you were really, really well off. Well, he has now multiple camels. They they were extremely rare. They were like the Lamborghinis and Ferraris of the day. I mean, what man would trade their wife for a Lamborghini? Don't answer that. (laughs) But can you imagine how Sarai felt about all this? She did willingly choose to participate in her husband's deception, but she probably thought that he was going to protect her no matter what. His stupidity, though, and his cowardice placed her in danger while he was out living the high life with Egypt's elite. But thank God for his faithfulness. See, God's now going to step in and do for Sarai what Abram failed to do. He's going to protect the one who was the promised mother of a new nation that would bless the entire world. Look at verse 17. It says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So God intervenes, and he sends plagues to Pharaoh and to to everybody in his house, in his palace. Now, the Hebrew word here for plagues means uh, diseases. Um, And usually when you see this word in the Old Testament, it refers to uh, skin diseases of different types. Now, at this point, there's nothing, nothing at all that Abram could do to reverse the situation that he created. The one that started with a little bit of faithlessness and a little white lie. And again, we see here Abram's failure to trust in God's faithfulness was very, very costly. This time, it cost injury to his wife and injury to those in Pharaoh's house. So from this incident, we need to learn that our failure to trust God injures others. Our failure to trust in God injures others. Think of how Abram's deception injured others. See, he injured Sarai by putting her in a position where she could have committed adultery. He injured Pharaoh by deceiving him and nearly allowing him to commit adultery. He injured the innocent people of Pharaoh's house by causing them to get these nasty skin diseases. And here's the thing. He even injured his unborn son. Remember, Abram's about 75. God's not going to give him a son for about another 25 years. But see, all of this in Genesis 12 takes place prior to that son of his, to that son Isaac. Because if you go on in Genesis 26, you you see Isaac as an adult. He's settling into an unknown place. And when the men there ask him about his attractive wife, Rebecca, what do you think he does? He plays the same game his father played. He tells the men that Rebecca is his sister in fear that they're going to kill him. And though at first look, it may, it may look like Abram still got rewarded for his stupidity and getting all of these uh, servants and camels and all of these luxurious items. But keep, but keep something in mind here. See, ultimately, there is no benefit from this kind of disobedience. Because here's what we see in some of the following chapters of Genesis. You begin to see that everything that Abram acquired here in Egypt actually ends up causing him a lot of trouble and ends up causing further suffering to his family and to others. 
See, for example, because of all the wealth that they received in Egypt, Abram and his nephew Lot will need more land for their flocks and herds. So when they get back to the promised land, they have to split. They have to go separate directions. Well, because Lot would have been present during this time, uh, during this whole episode in Egypt, Lot was there, he got a taste of the wealth of Egypt. So now he starts, when he goes back to to Canaan, he starts measuring everything in the promised land by what he saw in Egypt. And this eventually leads to the downfall of him and his family. And then to top things off, we also see in Genesis 16 that one of the servants that Pharaoh gave to Abram was a servant named Hagar. And if you know the story, you know that Sarai, uh, some years go on, Sarai tells Abram to sleep with Hagar to bear him a son. So Hagar gets pregnant and gives birth to Ishmael, and that produces a whole other slew of problems. See, the same goes for us as it did for Abram. Our failure to trust in God's faithfulness in the midst of trials is very costly, and it can injure others. Think of the person facing a financial struggle. Instead of of going to the Lord for guidance, they take matters into their own hands. They they start with a few scratch-offs and lottery tickets, and then they go to the casino, and it's slot machines, and then before you know it, they're gambling everything away, and they end up in a deeper hole than they started. Or what about the husband who experiences some stressful days at work? But rather than going to God for comfort, that old habit kicks in and he finds comfort in alcohol. It starts slow, but before he knows it, he's a functional alcoholic. He's lost the respect of his wife and his kids. And then he gets behind the wheel while drunk, slams into a car, and kills a 20-year-old girl. These are two real stories, by the way. And I'm sure that you can think of many more. See, we don't live our lives in a vacuum. As believers, our decisions to either trust God or to put our trust in ourselves will impact others for better or for worse. It's been said that sin sowed in private will blossom in public. Our failure to trust God injures others. Faithful Abram's lack of faith was costly because it insulted God and it injured others, and still we see the cost going up. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? So somehow, Pharaoh figures out the whole truth, that Sarai is Abram's wife. And he's ticked at Abram now. Now understand that most people during this time viewed the world uh, through the lens of polytheistic superstition which means that they understood the root causes of diseases and sickness to be primarily spiritual and not necessarily physical. This belief would have taken them a step further then to the point where they believed that in order to cure the disease, they needed to figure out which God they offended and then they would go and try appeasing that God. So at some point, Pharaoh did likely acknowledge the God of Sarai and Abram, not though as as the one true God. Um, just as one of the gods among many others, because after all, he thought of himself as a god, and Egypt had many gods and goddesses. But it's likely that he would have acknowledged that the source of the plagues was Sarai's mighty God. And it seems, uh, the scripture does seem to indicate that Sarai was spared from this disease as well, that it was just Pharaoh and those who actually belonged to his house. So that alone would have drew his suspicion that, oh, this is the one lady who doesn't have this disease. And that would have eventually led him to the truth. But he's not done questioning Abram. Look at verse 19. He says, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. 
after his final question, without giving Abram any chance to offer a defense, or simply because really Abram wouldn't have had a defense at this point, Pharaoh orders Abram to take his wife and get out of Egypt. Verse 20. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So to bring to an end this frustrating situation, Pharaoh orders his men to escort Abram um, and, and their clan and all their possessions and to get them out of Egypt. Now aware that God was watching over them or because he was sorry that he took another man's wife, Pharaoh allows them to keep all of their servants, all of the animals, all the riches, and he guarantees their safe departure. But here's what I don't want us to miss, because here again we see another way that Abram's failure to trust in God's faithfulness was very costly. This time it cost him his witness. See, from this we learn that our failure to trust God invalidates our witness. Our failure to trust God invalidates our witness. Consider what an incredible opportunity Abram had uh, to witness to Pharaoh about his mighty God. See, Abram should have been the one speaking boldly to the mighty rulers about the power of God. Instead, what we see is he remains silent and he gets preached to by Pharaoh, a pagan king, and he is exposed as a liar. After all, if Abram couldn't trust his own God when there wasn't even a visible threat, why should this pagan king give Abram's God a second thought? What kind of opinion did Pharaoh have of Abram's God after this whole ordeal? What, kind of, well, what about Lot and Sarai and the rest of them? How, how were they looking at Abram and, and what were they learning from him? See, Abram should have been the one to build and encourage their faith by his example. But look what they're taught instead. But as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, he said this. He said, these things happened to them, meaning the people of Israel, including Abram. They happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So from Abram, we learn that our failure to trust in God's faithfulness in the midst of trials invalidates our witness. Think about what happens to your witness when you fail to trust God. When, when one minute you're talking about the difference Jesus made in, in your life, and the next minute you're compromising your integrity instead of obeying him. Or what about when people see you grumbling and complaining instead of trusting in God's provision? Or when they watch you walking around like a bundle of worry and anxiety instead of seeking God's guidance? Or when they witness you judging everyone who looks different, thinks different, speaks different, votes different, instead of showing the love and grace and hospitality that Jesus shows you? To quote Swindoll one more time, he writes this. He said, every Egypt has a pharaoh. We live among people who do not know our God. They serve the gods of wealth, possessions, power, status, self, and others. There are too many to list. Then they hear someone talking about having a relationship with the one true creator. Naturally, their curiosity prompts them to observe how this person's life differs from their own. When they see us blindly blundering through life, making unwise or sinful choices, we bring shame to God rather than glory. Furthermore, we confuse the curious. Nobody respects a phony. No one admires hypocrisy. Our failure to trust God invalidates our witness. So we've studied this passage and we've gleaned some valuable lessons from Abram's stumbling faith. And I pray that each one of us will take seriously the high cost of failing to trust in God's faithfulness. 
But if you're anything like me, this account in Abram's life makes you a bit uncomfortable. At least for me, it's a little frightening just how much I see myself in him. Like Abram, I stumble and fall. Like him, I experience faithful highs and and faithless lows. Like him, I panic and I try to take control of scary situations. Like him, I make plans apart from God. And like him, these plans always fail. Anyone else or am I the only one? So let's shift our focus for a minute. Let's take our eyes off of Abram and off of ourselves and let's fix them on God. See, because God is really the hero of this story. And God's the hero of our stories. See, even in the midst of Abram's faithlessness, even in his failure to remember God's wonderful promises, even when he made some really bad decisions, even in his disobedience, God remained faithful. His faithfulness, his grace, and his mercy are evident in the way he spared Abram's life, in the way he protected Sarai, in the way that God withheld the might of Egypt from crushing and destroying Abram and his family, and instead orchestrated the might of Egypt to return them safely to Canaan. See, perhaps the greatest lesson we can take away from this this morning is summed up well in Paul's words to the young pastor Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul said this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, the faithfulness of God eclipses our greatest failures of faithlessness. The faithfulness of God eclipses our greatest failures of faithlessness. See, despite all of his faithlessness, Abram couldn't thwart the promise of God. How do we know this? Well, we know this because God's ultimate promise to Abram that he would bless all the people of the earth did come to to pass despite Abram's failure this time and his many acts of failures and faithlessness to come. The New Testament in Galatians 3 says this. It says, these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Jesus Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, God made good on his promise to Abram by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And it's through our faith in Jesus that we become sons and daughters of God. Yes, we will experience the the, the earthly consequences of our sins, but ultimately, we will never have to suffer that ultimate consequence. Why? Because Jesus suffered it for us. On the cross, It was on the cross that he died for my lack of faith. It was on the cross that he died for Abram's lack of faith in Egypt. And it's on the cross that he died for your lack of faith this morning. So if you've never laid claim to God's promise made to Abram and fulfilled in Jesus, God is inviting you right now to turn to him in faith, to ask forgiveness, and to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, as the savior of your sin and the resurrected leader of your life. The moment you do this, his spirit regenerates you and places you in Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, we need to remember that it's Jesus who empowers us to live a life of faith. It's Jesus who empowers us. 
to live a life of faith because he's the only one whose faith never wavered. Jesus is the only one who didn't stumble when faced, faced with trials. He is the only one who didn't turn to his own devices but trusted only in the Father. Jesus is the only one of perfect faith. Apart from him, we cannot live a life of faith because he's both the beginning and the end of faith. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, as scripture says. By faith, we placed our trust in Jesus to save us and by faith, we place our trust in Jesus to sustain us. Yes, even through the most difficult famines and in the face of our very greatest fears. That's why we say the gospel is good news. The good news that Jesus gave his life for us to give his life to us so that he could live his faithful life through us. In Christ, the faithfulness of God eclipses our greatest failures of faithlessness. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, so many of us in here need forgiveness. God, so I I pray that you'd forgive us. Lord, forgive us for all the times that we've turned away from you. Father, forgive us for all the times we've, we've failed and made such ugly messes. Forgive us for every time we've insulted you, every time we've brought harm to others, Lord, and every time we've invalidated our witness before our watching world. And God, forgive us for those times that, that, that we've tried to do things completely apart from you, times that we've dismissed your character, the times that we've dismissed your faithfulness. And God, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, as your word says. Lord, so help us to trust you through the storms of life, through all the difficulties, all the trials. Lord, help us to trust you through our greatest fears. And God, next time we face a trial, remind us of the truths that we learn today in your word. And we ask that through the indwelling Christ, Lord, that you would give us every ounce of faith that we need because we know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Lord, so we thank you, Father, for your great faithfulness. And it's in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus that all God's children say, amen.